1: Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 120. It's titled, In Little is Contentment. A few weeks ago, I was wandering through one of my favorite places, a college bookstore. I like to browse the textbook section because the books are displayed by classes and sections rather than alphabetically or by topic. This somewhat random organizational structure with books piled horizontally in stacks rather than the typical vertical display of most bookstores is appealing to me because I find things that I I just wasn't expecting. I like the unpredictability of it. I only had a few minutes but stumbled upon a book I have been meaning to read. It's the Tao Te Ching and it's by Lao Tzu. Now, Tao means the way, and Dei means virtue or inner strength, and Qing means classic or great book. Hence, the title can be translated, The Classic of the Way and Virtue. The book dates from around 600 BC and consists of cryptic poems that probably rhymed in the early Chinese pronunciation. Edward Slingerland, in his book, Trying Not to Try, writes that Lao Tzu saw himself living in a profoundly corrupt age, characterized by glaring social inequities, economic chaos, and superficial consumerism. One wonders if most sages believe they live in profoundly corrupt times. Lao Tzu writes, The court is corrupt, the fields are overgrown, the granaries are exhausted, and yet somewhere clothes with fancy designs and colors hang sharp swords from their belts, Stuff their bellies with fine food and drink. This is what is called being proud of being a robber. Far is this from the way. Lao Tzu differed from his contemporary Confucius in his, in his solution to this corruption. Lao Tzu thought humans were fundamentally good, and if we followed our inner selves, we would do just fine. The problem is people don't look inward but outward and are led astray. Confucius thought humans were fundamentally flawed and needed rigorous training in order to act properly. He believed in systems and training. Lao Tzu believed in the opposite. He would probably resonate with today's unschooling movement. Slingerland writes that Lao Tzu's, quote, philosophical tar- target is the Confucians with their clear standards concerning the right kind of music to listen to, the right kind of clothes to wear, the right way to enter a room, and perhaps, most damaging, the precise way to be good. Lao Tzu's argument is that calling some behavior good ensures it will not be good, because conscious labeling and explicit effort poison our experience. Lao Tzu believed we think and speak too much, and we let our desires run amok. As Slingerland puts it, our thinking and verbalizing interferes with our ability to simply experience life. This combined with the tendency of our desires to grow incessantly, becoming temporarily sated, but then aroused again by some more desirable mirage in the distance is what leads to unhappiness. Lao Tzu writes, There is no crime greater than indulging your desires, There is no disaster greater than not knowing contentment. There is no calamity more serious than wanting to get ahead. If you know the contentment of contentment, you will be forever content. Lao Tzu was ahead of his time in his teachings that getting more things will never completely satisfy us. Humans are hedonistic adapters. We are on the hedonistic treadmill We quickly adjust to good and bad events or new levels of wealth or fame and then return to our base level of contentment. This has been shown in numerous academic studies. No matter, something good might happen, but eventually we get to this base level of contentment. I've had this same experience here. We move to Teton Valley full-time about three months ago, and I mentioned this in some of the earlier podcasts, this was a test, an experiment to see how we liked it. For the first few weeks, we would awake each morning be astonished at the beauty and grandeur of the Teton mountain range that was outside our window. Now I can go an entire day and not really notice the mountains unless I deliberately stop and acknowledge their presence and magnificence yet yeah, we still crave the novel and the new. Perhaps one key to contentment is to make and look forward to little changes. A dinner out, a weekend road trip, a new dessert or a new pair of earrings. Changes that bring novelty but don't overextend us financially. Because the idea is if the change only temporarily satisfies us, and we go back to this this set point, then, then why make huge changes if we can make small changes and hopefully get the same impact? Lao Tzu, or Lao Tzu writes, to know when you have enough is to be rich. Another key to successful living, according to Lao Tzu, is stop trying to change the world. It is too complex and unpredictable. He writes, for those who would like to take control of the world and act on it, I see with this they simply will not succeed. The world is a sacred vessel. It is not something that can be acted upon. Those who act on it destroy it. Those who hold on to it lose it. Instead, we should follow what Lao Tzu calls the bent over, you'll be preserved whole strategy of the ancients. Here's what he says, bent over, you'll be preserved whole. When twisted, you'll be upright. When hollowed out, you'll be full. When worn out, you'll be renewed. When you have little, you'll attain much. With much, you'll be confused. Now, that translation is by Robert G. Hendricks. A different translation by David Hinton rewords it and provides a little more insight. But it's still a cryptic passage. Here's what Hinton translated. In yielding is completion. In bent is straight. In hollow is full. In exhaustion is renewal, in little is contentment, in much is confusion. Rather than try to control what cannot be controlled or predicted, we should have sufficient flexibility and reserve to yield to what happens. We should bend forward so we don't take the brunt of what comes our way. I I have visions when I think of that of, of uh, The Weather Channel videos of a hurricane and, and the people trying to walk toward the hurricane, they're bent over and so they don't take the full brunt of the storm. Chinese scholar David Crane, in commenting on these passages, writes, If we are open to the impermanence of the self, to the constant flux and change of circumstance, then we can get out from under the sense of loss when circumstances change. Not that we shouldn't act, but instead of going big and trying to change the world and act upon the world, we should focus on the small. Renowned marketer Seth Godin said recently on a Tim Ferriss podcast that whenever possible, ask yourself, what's the smallest footprint I can get away with? What is the smallest project that is worth my time? What is the smallest group of people who I can make a difference for or to? Because smallest is achievable. Smallest feels risky. If you pick smallest and you fail, then you're really screwed up. We want to pick big because infinity is our friend. Infinity is safe. Infinity gives us a place to hide. Focus on the small because, as Lao Tzu stated, when you have little, you'll attain much. Now, this, this bent over and you'll be preserved, if you're bent over, you're you're more flexible than if you're rigid and straight. Something that's bent over and a little more flexible isn't fragile. It's more robust. Back in episode 55, I did, and the episode was on are you fragile or anti-fragile, and I... And I introduced and I talked about Nassim Nicholas Tala's book, Anti-Fragile. He also wrote The Black Swan. He recently gave a commencement address at American University in Beirut. Here's what he said. Success requires absence of fragility. I've seen billionaires terrified of journalists, wealthy people who felt crushed because their brother-in-law got very rich, academics with Nobel who were scared of comments on the web, The higher you go, the worse the fall. For almost all people I've met, external success came with increased fragility and a heightened state of insecurity. The worst of those are former something types with four-page CVs who, after leaving office and addicted to the attention of servile bureaucrats, find themselves discarded, as if you went home one evening to discover that someone suddenly emptied your house of all its furniture. But self-respect is robust. That's the approach of the Stoic school, which incidentally was a Phoenician movement. I've seen robust people in my village, Amyon, who are proud of being local citizens involved in their tribe. They go to bed proud and wake up happy. Or Russians mathematicians who, during the difficult post-Soviet transition period, were proud of making $200 a month and do work that is appreciated by 20 people. And consider that showing one's decorations, or accepting awards were a sign of weakness and lack of confidence in one's contributions. And believe it or not, some wealthy people are robust, but you just don't hear about them because they are not socialites. Live next door and drink a rock baladi, not vuv klikot. Which is a terrible pronunciation. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm not, I'm not drank a baladi or vuv klikot. But uh, apparently, uh, one is richer than the other. Now, I mentioned Lao Tzu is cryptic, and and the book's short, and you should read it. Some of the passages, I I don't understand. Some I probably maybe misread what he was saying, although I, I suspect a book like that is very much open to interpretation. But what I take from it is we should be flexible. We should not try to change the world, but focus on the small keep our desires under control, be content with what we have, but, but we can make little changes in our life. We crave novelty and, and new things, and, and not that we should never have that. I, I admit, we're a little bored here in Teton Valley. We like being here. The people are nice, but I'm getting a little stir-crazy. I really am. So I, I need to do some traveling this fall. One of Lao Tzu's teaching is his concept called Uwe, and it literally translated means no trying, no doing, or passive achievement. Slingerlin, in his book, writes, but it's not all about dull inaction. In fact, it refers to the dynamic, effortless, and unconscious state of mind of a person who is optimally active and effective. People in Uwe feel as if they are doing nothing. It's it's like effortless action or spontaneous action, and and this was his whole balance, which is why in some ways Lao Tzu is so contradictory in terms of so many of his phrases. Because ultimately, he believes if you label something and you say this is the way to do it, then then that corrupts the teaching. We have to somehow look inward and 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 sometimes interpret just following our inner self and to achieve this way. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle Slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's NetSuite.com slash David. NetSuite.com slash David. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors.
0: That's not just the sound of that first sip of morning Joe.
1: I kind of have two different topics here. I I was fascinated by Lao Tzu, but I was also fascinated by a couple of things I participated in last week. I watched a video on Real Vision TV and I read and, and participated in a webinar by Tim Hayes at Ned Davis Research. And they were polar opposites in terms of their views. In terms of the The video on Real Vision TV, it was by James Rickard. And I mentioned James in episode episode 49, is Money Dying. He wrote the book, The Death of Money and Currency Wars. And he's pretty bearish in terms of the monetary system. You can watch that video. You can sign up for a free... Seven day sample at Realvision dot com forward slash money. And, and that if you sign up for that trial, then then you then you can watch the video. And if you decide to join after seven days, you'll get twenty percent off. So that's at realvisiontv.com forward slash money. Well, in listening to his video, he's concerned about the ongoing rounds uh, of currency depreciation. He likened it. To passing the canteen, one country is depreciating their currency and striving for a weak currency, and then, then it goes to another country, and he says they're all trying to do it. These central banks are trying to do it because by depreciating the currency, they can import inflation. Because as their currency weakens, then import prices get more expensive. But he says at the end, that doesn't help world growth. It, it's helping one country at the expense of their neighbor. And he says, well, what's the logical conclusion? And this is where he gets really bearish. He thinks the logical conclusion to these currency wars is systemic collapse or structural reform, that it'll be like the the late 40s when the entire monetary system was re- restructured. But he didn't think <laughs> that politics will allow this structural reform. So he believes systemic collapse is inevitable. And he he went through this series. He says in 1998, he was actually chief counsel at long-term capital management when it was bailed out or when Wall Street bailed out this particular hedge fund. And, And then he says in 2008, central banks bailed out Wall Street. And he believes now as early as or at, he just put the year 2018. We'll see in a moment. He doesn't know when it's going to happen. He can see. He asked, "Who's going to bail out the central banks?" And he believes central banks are at risk because if individuals, households, businesses, governments lose confidence, there's a confidence boundary. If they lose confidence in central banks, that we could have a systemic collapse. He says we won't be living in caves. Eating canned goods, but he believes the dollar will be like the Mexican peso will no longer be the world currency. That somehow the IMF will have to come step in, and and with the the use of strategic drawing rights, which is sort of this this currency basket that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has created. Somehow they will be the central bank of last resort to bail out all the other central banks. And he says what we should do is we should run out and, and buy gold. But not to go crazy about it. He said 10% of your net worth in gold. And he said "We did. people just didn't realize how close we came to the system collapsing in 1998 and 2008 and that we should not be complacent. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen or not. One of the things that he did say that did concern me, and I had forgotten about, was the money market reform. When when the U.S. government reformed the money market, there's this rule that they put in place, and here I'm quoting from a Vanguard piece that says, the rules, these new rules, allow all money market funds during times of extreme volatility to temporarily prevent investors from making withdrawals or to impose fees for investors who redeem shares. That's called a gate, and they, and they, hedge funds do that, and some other funds do that, but money market funds now have the right to put in a gate to prevent you from pulling your money out. I called my broker, Schwab, to make sure I wasn't in any money funds because sometimes the cash line there, they'll automatically do a sweep into a money market fund. And the average yield on money market accounts is 0.1%. What a money market account is, it's a fund, it's like a mutual fund, but it invests in short term commercial paper issued by, by corporations. So very short term debt, and they roll it over, very, very low yield. But now they're saying that, and, and in the case of this Vanguard, they say they have to, they have to implement these rules by October 14th, 2016. I can't think of any reason why someone would invest in a money market fund with such low yields, given that in a times of stress and volatility, you would not have access to your funds. Now, one of the questions to, to Rickard is, is, how close are we to a tipping point? Are we near? And, and this is where I think he was, was most correct. And I agree. He says, the rigorous correct answer is, you don't know. No one knows. Systemic collapse is one thing that could happen, and and we protect ourselves by doing what he says. We have a pocket of independence. We have some gold, which is a type of currency, and gold coins or, or gold bars, and we keep them as just in case something like this happens. Now, on the exact opposite spectrum was Tim Hayes of Ned Davis Research, and Ned Davis is... The research service that I use—I've used them for over a decade—and he went through the data, showing he's convinced, and the numbers point out, point out that we are in a secular bull market. The return of the MSCI All Country World Index index in local currencies, so this is global stocks, since March ninth, two thousand nine, 2009, through. August fifteenth, twenty sixteen, is fifteen point one annualized. U.S. stocks have done eighteen point two percent annualized, and we have these long cycles where we're in a secular bull and a secular bear. And within those cycles, we in, in your typical secular bull market, we've had some that lasted eight years in ni- in the nineteen twenties. The secular bull market lasted 24 years, going from the 40s, part of the 40s to 50s, and part of the 60s. In the 80s and 90s, we had an 18-year secular bull market, and now we're in a seven-year in the terms of it, our current bull market. Now, within these bull markets or even a bear market, you have what's called a cyclical bull within a secular bull, and you can have a cyclical bear Within a secular bowl. So a downturn within an upgoing trend. And you can if you were in a cyclical bear market, you can also have a shorter term uptrend called a cyclical bull and a secular bear. and you can have a cyclical bear, cyclical bear uh, within a secular bear. And what's interesting is when you're in a secular bowl like we are now, the upside, these trends tend to be longer and higher. For example, the average gain, the median gain, within a secular bull market during a secular bull was 77%. And and that's what we've experienced. From March 9, 2009 through April 29, 2011, the market, this is the Dow Jones Industrial Average and measure U.S. stocks, rose 95%. And then we had a secular or a cyclical bear within a secular bull. Markets fell from April 29, 2011, Through October 3rd, 2011, they fell 16.8%, lasted five months. And then we had a four-year run from October 2011 through May of 2015, where the Dow Jones appreciated 71.9%. Then we had a cyclical bear within a secular bull market, what we just experienced. From May 19th, 2015 through February 11th, 2016, the markets fell 14.5%. That's a nine-month stretch of time. And since February 2016, we're again in another upside run with gains over 18%. And in this, this webinar, he went through all the reasons he believes we're in a secular bull market and why it, it will continue. And, and the primary reason that he gave is that secular bull markets end with very, very high valuations, Excessive optimism and exuberance along with a great deal of complacency. And generally that comes when you have a much stronger economy where, where investors believe valuations are justified. Think of the internet bubble in the year 2000 or, or 2007 when there was a huge amount of exuberance. We're not there yet. The point is during secular and cyclical bull markets, valuations get more and more expensive. And during bear markets, valuations get cheaper and cheaper. And so valuations are expensive when we look at the stock market, but they're still cheap relative to bond yields. And even during secular bull markets, you'll get a time you know, as the economy improves when rates start to increase. And yet that doesn't necessarily always kill the bull market right there. And, and his view is, is we're still in the mid-stages of this secular bull market, that it could last through the end of this decade or longer. So we have two different views. We have a potential systematic systemic collapse on one hand of the monetary system and we have a secular bull market on the other hand. What What do we do if we're going to be Lao Tzu type investors, what we're gonna do is we're gonna we're gonna use the 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 bend over approach to investing. We're gonna be flexible and we're gonna have multiple drivers in our portfolio. So we're gonna have a slice of our portfolio in case there is systemic collapse. We're gonna have gold, but we're also gonna own stocks because in a secular bull market, stocks will outperform bonds. I talked about secular bulls and bears back in episode, I believe it was 48 of the show. Do you have too little invested in stocks? And I did that right before the episode on that I talked about James Rickard. Is this the end of money? And, and that's not by coincidence, because I go back and forth all the time in terms of one day you can be very, very fearful that things are going to fall apart, but then you have to be recognize what is the data saying now what are the conditions now and the conditions now is, are that the, we're not anywhere near a recession that valuations while high are not excessive that that investors are not overly exuberant yet and that is in line with your typical secular bull market i invest in that oftentimes I don't do anything. This, this concept of uwe, the literal translation, is no trying, no doing. One of the things that Taleb says is that we often need to procrastinate. One of his quotes from Antifragile is, few understand that procrastination is our natural defense. Letting things take care of themselves and exercise their anti-fragility. It results from some ecological or naturalistic wisdom, and it is not always bad. Sometimes we don't do anything. We just wait. And I look at my portfolio. I've not made many changes this year. Back in April, I added some emerging markets, some master limited partnerships, some bank loans, and some smart beta value in terms of international investing. So that was in April as I made that change, mainly because I've gotten money from my my buyout from my former company that I wanted to put to work. And so as evidence that the cyclical bear market had ended and we were entering into a cyclical bull within a secular bull market, I added exposure. Those positions are up. I, but on the other hand, I've bought gold twice as recently as this week because I want to increase my allocation there. And and those are opposite ends of the of the spectrum, but that's part of being a a flexible investor, being anti-fragile and focusing on the small things you can do. Now, that doesn't mean that we never do anything. What I'm doing is focusing on the investment conditions, what we talked about last week, focusing on the math focusing on the emotions, one of the things that we do on the money for the rest of us hub is monitor conditions. So when the time comes that investors become overly exuberant and, and overly non-complacent or overly complacent and and the economy begins to turn as indicative are indicated by PMI data and other indicators, where the risk of a global economic slowdown are high, and the risk of a bear market are increasing, then we'll make a change and we'll reduce risk and, and move money out of stocks. But that's rare. And it could be several more years. And that's why we have to monitor the conditions. And that's what we do on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub as well as I share my investment portfolio with you. to see, So you can see that, that I eat my own cookie. What am I doing in my investing? And then there's also model portfolios and asset allocation tools so you can structure your own portfolio. You can get information for that at for of us Hub.com. Show notes for this episode are at moneyfortherestofus.net. And if you go to moneyfortherestofus.net and sign up, you can sign up for my Insider's Guide. It's there on the homepage. Each week, I'll email you those show notes. I'll email you other valuable content, including a summary article of each week's episode that comes in your mailbox, inbox free every Wednesday when the show is released. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.